City Limits, and it's the second Wednesday of the month. Therefore, it's energy and the related issues today. And we're going to be talking to a former co-presenter of this program, Mark Allen, on the show today. Mark's going to talk to us about a group he started up on town planning, and we'll get to that because I think everyone knows, those who listened when Mark was on the show, know he has a real interest in the population issue. And we're going to talk to Dave Sweeney also, the um, the nuclear, anti-nuclear spokesperson for the Australian Conservation Foundation, who is going to talk to us about a number of issues involving uranium. Um, of course, we had the Hiroshima 75th anniversary last week, but also there's been a move in America People have been charged with taking all sorts of money to try to prop up the nuclear energy industry in America because it's going downhill fast financially. So we'll talk about that with Dave as well. Anyway, we've been work out who we are. I'm Kevin Healy, and uh, we've also got today... I'm Karina Edo. I usually just produce the show, but today I'll be chatting if you'll have me. <laughs> well, we'll have you, Karina. We'll have you because Mick's <laughs> taking a few weeks off. Thanks, Karina. You've also been keeping us on air all these weeks, so it's been quite wonderful. I thought I'd kick off with another fine example of Herald Sun objective reporting. Oh, dear. They had a story saying Sky News has risen in the ratings to secure its highest overnight audience share for the year, fueled by the appetite for information on COVID-19. So apparently you've got to go to Sky News to get the information. <laughs> on Monday, Sky News secured 5.5% of the audience, 5.5% its highest share. And I thought, 5.5%? <laughs> That means there's 94.5% who aren't watching it, which is... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they reckon that's a great result. It was the highest audience ever for Afternoon Agenda, anchored by Kieran Gilbert. Audiences for primetime programs, including Credlin, The Bolt Report, Alan Jones, and Paul Murray Live, Rose By, etc. So there you are, and those... Uh, they're a wonderful group of people there, Bolt and Credlin and Co. So they're the people you really want to get your information from. Sorry, how much was it rising to 5.5% from how many? Well, we don't know, but um, obviously it was lower than that. But anyway, yeah. I think the 94.5% not watching is more important, but you know, that's their business. <laughs> and that, that, of course, was in the Herald Sun. And the point of that is, of course, that Foxtel is part of the, uh, the Murdoch empire, so it, oh. they're promoting themselves. Yesterday, we had yet another one of these chemical fires in Melbourne, mm -hmm. or not yesterday, Sunday. Yesterday, as we record, we keep making this mistake, don't we? We're recording on Monday. <laughs> I think people know that. But on Sunday, we had we had another yet another chemical fire in Melbourne, which uh, burnt for a long time. People were told to keep their windows down, to go out, not go outside, and uh, turn off air conditioners for several hours afterwards. Yep. And this was, it was a fire. No one knows what happened, what caused it, but people locally said they started to hear explosions at about 4.30 in the morning and further explosions believed to be caused by batteries and aerosol cans and the recycling depot could be heard all morning as firefighters fought the blaze. So uh, it's happened again and, you know, we've just got to do something about this, but it keeps recurring and, of course, it keeps recurring in the suburbs of working class people, you know. They don't put those things in uh, in the suburbs of the nice yeah, people. Yeah, that's true. No, people don't want to be near near recycling plants. That reminds me of the one a couple of years ago. That recycling plant was it in South Australia that burned down because they had just been stockpiling so much unprocessable recycling material. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was one in South Australia. There's been a few. That one we had that damaged the uh, Stony Creek, for instance. And Stony Creek still hasn't recovered from that one, so. What about these places makes them so flammable, Kevin? Well, I mean, that's <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, okay, also, you'll be pleased to know, residents of known tax havens held more than $5.7 of cash in Australian bank accounts, according to figures released for the first time, suggesting the local financial system remains vulnerable to money laundering and tax avoidance. Who would have thought? Who <laughs> would have thought that? Yes, the Australian Taxation Office has been made public as part of a global effort to crack down on those shifting assets offshore and seeking to avoid tax. The figures reveal residents of tax haven countries such as Cayman Islands or Tuvalu have substantially higher average balances in Australian bank accounts compared with Germans or New Zealanders. The most striking of these is the Marshall Islands, where 71 residents of the Pacific Ocean tax haven held 386 million in Australian bank deposits at the end of 2018, 
or an average of 5.4 million per account. That's about 120% of GDP for the tiny nation whose main source of income is grants from the US government. Oh. Mark Zernsack, who was a spokesman for Tax Justice Network Australia and has examined the deposit, said there were some serious red flags in the data. I would have thought so. Uh, he said it was unlikely the accounts were held by those who actually lived in the Marshall Islands. I, I would think that's 100%. Oh. Or other tax havens. And there was a risk they were owned by Australians who had moved their residency offshore. We remain concerned that governments of tax havens continue to be reckless in assisting people to transfer their nationality in ways that allow them to avoid paying tax where they have businesses, Dr. Cernsack said. The British Virgin Islands had the second highest average amount per account at 1.3 million, 700 residents of the Caribbean tax haven were holding deposits of 1.3 billion in Australia. Tuvalu, with just 11,500 people, had 140 account holders in Australia valued at $112 million. That is about 200% of Tuvalu's GDP. Oh, my goodness. That is so much money. That is so much money. You don't think these people are getting out and doing this stuff, you know, day to day, and we get in trouble. The ordinary citizen gets demonised for hoarding toilet paper and, what is it, stockpiling meat. about wealth hoarding? That's just... It's so much money. That's right. They're stockpiling wealth. Exactly. Hang on, I'm just going to pour a bit of tea. So get, there we go. Lovely. Right. Now, let's get back to one we've been following in recent weeks, AMP. Mm. We've been talking about the fact that it appointed this bloke, Bo Pahara, to run the AMP capital branch, uh, despite the fact that they settled, they settled a uh, sexual harassment claim three years ago mm. for $500,000, half a million dollars. And they still keep calling it a claim by a female subordinate, which I don't like. But uh, it's had an effect. One of the big investors is no longer a substantial shareholder, a mob called Lazard Asset Management. Uh, they sold down a further 30 million worth of company stock the day before Friday's 13% plunge. Mm. Lazard early this year held 7.4% 7, 7 of AMP, which had whittled down to a 6.3%. But Thursday's sale of more than 17 million shares left the fund manager's stake, etc. And interestingly enough, they've shown that they really do support women because the um, AMP, they promoted a woman called Kylie O'Connor to lead the asset management arms real estate business, replacing the long-serving Carmel Hoorigan. Now, Carmel Hoorigan was the woman overlooked ah. when they appointed Bo Bahara. So it was between the two of them. And she she has now left the company and gone to work for another investment company. And also, well, there's a couple of things. But just late last week, and this is interesting, the the AMP has suffered another blow with the head of its Australian business, Alex Wade, abruptly exiting with immediate effect. Yes, Mr. Wade, who ran the wealth and banking operations after they were merged to create a larger Australian division, has been with the group a little over one and a half years. In a statement on Thursday. AMP said he was stepping down from his role effective immediately, but did not give an explanation why. Mr. Wade was appointed to run AMP's wealth business in December 2018 and joined a month later. goes on, but the exit of Wade comes after AMP said it expected underlying profit, which strips out one-off items of 140 to 150 million for the six months to June, a drop of more than half from the same period a year earlier. So they're having a lot of trouble. Bo doesn't seem to be pushing up the income a lot. <laughs> then last Wednesday, Daniel Crennan, who's the deputy chairman of ASIC, which is the um, Australian Securities and Investment Commission, said wealth management group AMP gets worse for them. This is terrible, Karina. Wealth management group AMP may face criminal lawsuits by the end of the year. Crennan told a parliamentary hearing that the regulator had a number of investigations that are they're ongoing internally along with a number of investigations that have been briefed with the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions in relation to AMP. These would, of course, arise out of the Haynes Royal Commission, where they, they came out of it very badly indeed. Under questioning from Labor MP Andrew Lee, who asked if any matters would likely be filed in court by the end of the year, Crennan said, yes, I would think so. There's a significant number of matters, Crennan said, which was more than five, less than 50, significantly less than 50. It wouldn't be within our practice to identify with any precision how many investigations we have ongoing into any particular entity. So they could face all these charges by the end of the year. 
But the AMP, an AMP spokesman said the company would respond diligently to any of ASIC's concerns. ASIC handles its own civil cases but refers cases to the CDPP, that's the Director of Prosecutions, when an investigation involves potential criminal matters. The new court matters will compound problems facing AMP, which, which has two separate class action lawsuits filed against it last week. The first by aggrieved former financial advisors claiming the company dishonoured long-standing contract terms and the other seeking damages for unethical life insurance advice. So it just gets worse and worse for them, Karina. I know. Here we thought it was just a simple matter of profit-motivated business, but um, it seems that there might be a little more lurking under the surface here. Oh, yes. So poor old AMP is uh, in all sorts of trouble. Mm. Kevin, I think we're running out of time for this intro today. Are we? Okay. Is, is Mark on the line? Yes. Oh, good. Well, okay. We'll go straight to Mark. Yeah. Great. We've got Mark Allen, a former co-presenter on. Mark, you formed a group. What's it called again? My group is called Town Planning Rebellion. That's right. I, uh, when I saw the title, I thought it's one of the most egregious examples of plagiarism I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, that's kind of deliberate. We're trying to tune into the whole um, Extinction Rebellion thing that's going on and um, go with that wave that they've created. So we're kind of riding on their wave, so to speak. So what, tell us something about it. What are you, what are you planning to do? And how, I suppose you've been delayed by the whole pandemic situation. We have. It's changed our approach somewhat. So we're sort of issuing a lot of press releases at the moment and spreading the word, uh, especially on social media, and just getting the, the word out there that we, we exist and why we exist. And the main purpose for our existence is to bring into the forefront of people's consciousness about the massive climate impact that construction and development has. That's it's 40% of emissions, and that's not taking into account the impact of um, bad development, car dependence, um, urban sprawl. It doesn't take into account the loss of biodiversity. It doesn't take into account the extra food miles that are created when we build on our food bowls. So um, it's really important that we make it very, very clear that urban and regional planning development has to be at the forefront of our consciousness in terms of how we tackle the climate and ecological emergency and all the other emergencies that are going on at the moment. And so we've, we've, we've got 10 focus points and our approach is very much about reducing so-called development, looking at retrofitting, repurposing existing built stock, selective densification for specific purposes like more public housing, and cooperative housing, basically reassessing our whole approach to planning and development to one that can be in sync with tackling the emergencies that we're facing now. Right. And well, what are your 10 points? Can you tell us briefly? Yeah, sure. So the 10 focus points are basically, the, the main one is about retrofitting and repurposing existing built stock. So we want to reduce the amount of buildings that are being pulled down. The amount of carbon emissions that goes into constructing buildings is huge. So to pull them down, which requires more carbon emissions, put them into landfill and then pour more high carbon concrete in order to build new buildings makes no sense whatsoever. And that's what's going on so much in Melbourne at the moment. We are pulling down so many decent, robust buildings that we can retrofit, um, that we can better use in many circumstances. And there's the whole retrofitting the suburbs movement, which David Holmgren from um, of the co-founder of Permaculture has put in place about how we can actually better utilize our existing built stock in a low carbon economy. And then, um, then that moves into the areas of, well, sometimes we, we may um, need to increase the amount of public housing, affordable housing. While, while there are something like a million empty homes going vacant in Australia, and our first priority must be to fill those, there's still going to be some room for more development, especially to suit particular demographics, people on low incomes who might feel more secure in like a cooperative style housing system where they have their own facilities on hand, but also have that communal sort of atmosphere. So more kind of developments like Murundaka, which is a cooperative housing development, more public housing. But how do we do that? Well, we need to, first of all, only selectively demolish particular buildings, those buildings that we, we think are not worth retrofitting. So the, the lowest standard housing stock, maybe some of the post-war housing, the sort of 1940s housing, the asbestos-ridden ones, the ones that 
have had very little maintenance done. There might be some scope there if we remove some of those and build really good quality, well-built, medium-density housing. So it's about being really selective, though, with absolutely against up zoning and using zoning as a way of increasing densities because that doesn't discriminate between good and bad building stock. So we're about increasing densities, but only for affordable housing. If you increase densities in any other way, you, you push prices up and you can actually start gentrifying areas and force from lower incomes out of share houses. Mm. What's your attitude to urban sprawl? Our attitude to urban sprawl is that we we need to absolutely put an end to that as well. So that's our sort of second or third focus point. (laughs) I'm not sure. One of them is about tackling density. Mm. The other one is about uh, tackling urban sprawl. So any, any development beyond the fringe, again, has to be really well considered. If it's development based around uh, regenerative farming or rewilding, carbon sequestration, all of those things, then you know, there might be some scope. But the general, the general consensus is, is that we need to stop sprawling outwards and we need to completely reconsider the development we do within the existing built form. And in terms, of course, of, of dumping from developments and buildings being torn down or, or dirt being excavated to build new apartments, uh, there's an issue arisen at uh, Nillenbeck Council, which is up around Eltham Way, uh, you don't know if you saw it or not, but a couple of farms are having all this stuff dumped on them and the farmers are apparently selling their land for uh, for these developers. But the local council and the local residents are screaming and yelling. And uh, one woman called Sarah Hunter and her family are building their dream home on an organic farm opposite the new dumping site and said oil and water from trucks had flowed into their creek. It's a total nightmare and the mayor is trying to see what they can do to stop it. Uh, and the Green Wedges Coalition President Khan Frank said residents on Melbourne's fringe were up in arms and soil dumping was a widespread problem. So here's a good example of all that. Yeah, that's right. Well, our whole economic system here is so geared around development and construction. In fact, just recently when Dan Andrews said, you know, we might have to reduce the number of construction workers in order to tackle the COVID crisis we're in now, you know, he made the comment that construction is the lifeblood of our economy. We need, to, we need to transition to a different type of economy, a steady state economy that isn't so reliant upon construction. If we continue down this path, the more we, the more we rely upon construction, the harder it is for us to, to wean ourselves off it. But the harder it is going to be for us to do what we really need to do to tackle the major challenges that we have ahead. So we've got to start diversifying our economy, moving away from that, or else we're going to be constantly having battles like this. You know, you might win the odd battle here and there, but the general consensus is is that we're going to be constantly, constantly fighting developers. And of course, councils are losing their um, powers all the time. And that's another big issue too the power of developers and the development lobby as such that they're now um, sitting increasingly sitting in on um, decisions and having a greater influence so that the power of local government is constantly being diminished which is a big issue yeah well we talked about one last week where the minister has, has taken a, one away from Yarra council where six cottages are going to be destroyed for a big development but again it's it, it would indicate that because they're using coronavirus now to say we need to have more investment so we overlook the problems and the environmental controls that should be looked at in these developments. Uh, you know, I think, I think they're, they're getting away with a murder almost in terms of many developments using the, uh, the coronavirus as, as an excuse. That's the great tragedy. So many of us were hopeful, probably naively so, that this crisis, this coronavirus pandemic would provides an opportunity for us to actually start thinking that we can go about create a new normal in face of the massive climate emergency that we're facing. And the hope was that a lot of right-wing politicians who deep down might have realized that they were on the wrong path, but were too egotistical, so to speak, to actually admit that they were wrong, could have used the cover of COVID to sort of change their approach and say, okay, we've got a legitimate excuse now. We can, we can do this and save some face and put us on a new trajectory. But what they've actually done is they've actually used COVID to dig deeper into their neoliberal capitalist development at all costs ideology. And it's not just, of course, with development. It's also with giving increased powers to uh, the fossil fuel lobby. It's an, it's an incredibly tragic, lost opportunity that we've got. And the fact that they're using 
COVID to reduce our democracy, so to speak, and to reduce these important nuanced conversations that we need to have around development and construction is heartbreaking for someone like me who's been involved in campaigning for this for many years now. Mm. As you both talk about, I mean, it, it does seem like, I guess, the general feeling amongst people that I talk to is that these odds kind of do seem really insurmountable you know, with even public housing developments that could last another, what did they say, 100 years still being renovated and changed up and and people being moved further and further out. Against these seemingly insurmountable odds, these are really amazing focus points, retrofitting, focusing on urban sprawl, density. How is Town Planning Rebellion going about trying to, trying to implement this? Yeah, that's actually very difficult because we are, um, a lot of people would see us as being very radical because we are actually, you know, very few people involved in sustainable planning are going as far as saying we need to move to a steady state society. We need to wean our economy off construction. We need to talk about, you know, filling empty buildings before developing sites. So a lot of sustainable planning is damage control, uh, from my opinion. And what we're saying is we're looking at massive systemic change. So we are basically at this stage, we are just really trying to spread the word and trying to bring it into more conversation in environmental circles and beyond that we actually, the trajectory that we're on now with this economic system that's reliant upon the constant pouring of concrete, which has to go on indefinitely. It it can't ever stop because our, our whole system is reliant upon it has to change now our original plan and it still is our plan was to because we are connected to extinction rebellion in the sense that we we agree with their three demands and we we also have those three demands uh, we also have a couple of other demands one is that we transition to a steady state or degrowth society and the other one is that we we look at the the way behavioral change the way we approach activism but that's a whole other topic what we really focus and connect with them on is the is the citizens assemblers because it's all very well you know groups like extinction rebellion who are very good at the protest side of things but what are the policies we're putting forward what will the society look like that we're fighting for and that can only really be achieved through direct forms of democracy we can't rely upon governments anymore to get us out of this mess i'm not saying we should completely ignore the democratic process i'm still in communication with um, some politicians and trying to influence them and having some good relationships with them, but it's slow and it's tokenistic. So we, we're going to need direct democracy, citizens' assemblies, and that's where Town Planning Rebellion will be. We're going to stand up and say we need to have citizens' assemblies about town planning. This needs to be forefront, along with green energy, along with regenerative farming, along with rewilding, and all the other things we need to do and make it clear to the whole world that these 10 focus points that we've got are absolutely crucial if we want to pull this thing around. Mm. Mm. And the tragedy of urban sprawl or of not doing this properly is a situation like the one currently at, at Lilydale where a developer is building an estate on an old quarry site and the local community is trying to save kangaroos on the site it's interesting, actually, because a couple of weeks ago, the developer said, unfortunately, the culling approach is deemed the most humane method of dealing with the welfare of the local kangaroo population. But obviously, the developer's seen the writing on the wall, because this week he's come out supporting the community and the council. And indeed, Indigenous elder and researcher Janet Turpy Johnston, who was on the board of the Mullum Mullum Indigenous Gathering Place, said she was concerned by the government's attitude and the lack of real knowledge by the Department of environment, land, water and planning. And that's the point you just made. You can't depend on government because, in fact, the only person, only group now that wants them to be cold and says there's no other choice is the State Department. Yeah, exactly. Again, it just goes to show the limited powers of, of local government. The local government are in favour of, you know, re, rehoming them. Um, look, there's, there's two issues here with this. I mean, the first issue is obviously the very, uh, the very important issue of the welfare of the kangaroos and the tragedy of the fact that people who've grown up with these kangaroos and watching them, kids who've connected with them, bonded with them, and seeing that taken away is heartbreaking. And, you know, it's really important that we do everything we can 
to ensure that they're rehomed. It will be a very traumatic experience for them. They have to be like darted and moved. It's not going to be nice for them, but it's, it's better than killing them. But of course, there's another bigger issue here as well, which is why are we building? Now, I don't know the site. I haven't been to the site. I know some of it's a disused quarry. Part of the site might be ideal for development. I don't know. But certainly for the pictures I've seen is a lot of the area where those kangaroos are is country to me that looks like it should be left well alone. And even, um, even when this is developed, there's going to be more and more and more battles that people are going to have to fight. And the whole point of Town Planning Rebellion is it's great that we're fighting these individual battles, but we've actually got to change the system that makes it so that we have to keep fighting these battles. It's not, <laughs> I haven't got the capacity to keep fighting individual battles forever, and, and most people don't, you know. Yes, another, another interesting story recently was the fact, I don't know if you saw it or not, that magpies and pigeons lose up to four hours sleep a night in inner residential areas due to light pollution. Did you see that? I didn't, know, but uh, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they say that both magpies and pigeons average 10 hours of sleep per night. We found that magpies, this is a group that did the study at La Trobe, uh, magpies uh, lose more non-rapid eye movement sleep under white light than amber light. By comparison, pigeons lost around four hours of sleep under both white and amber. And it goes on to recommend... Melbourne and Latrobe graduate researcher Farley Connolly said artificial light should be used only when needed. Switch off that porch light, install sensor lights, remove decorative lights from trees, balconies and other outdoor settings and keep street and, and park lights directed to the ground or shielded where possible. And if you've ever woken up by the, by the call of a magpie, remember it could be just as sleep deprived as you are. So <laughs> it's interesting, another, another aspect of urban environment where we're affecting the poor bloody birds. Well, it is. And another issue, of course, is that if we switch off light, we save emissions and so many lights are left on unnecessarily. So it's another example of why we need to have this behavioral change. It's really important that we have systemic change. Um, it's, it, you know, that it's pointless you know, having shorter showers if we keep building and keep doing all this. We've got to do both. So we've got to think about our own actions and we've also got to change the system as well. And um, yeah, this is a prime example of that. You know, it, it's just encouraging people to think differently about resources and light. And does that light actually need to be switched on? And I think we need to do more, get people to think along those lines about how they can mm. curb their own personal impact without distracting us from the need for systemic change. Yeah. Mm. Well, opposite me at Jewel Station, there's always heaps of uh, uh, heaps of birds over on the. Uh, uh, on the park opposite my place, primarily pigeons, there are some magpies there, but the, the lights on the station are very bright all night and are, they must be losing sleep big time, those poor little birds. Yeah, As, there's probably a lot of very sleep-deprived pigeons in, in Melbourne. I never thought about that before, but I'll never look at a pigeon the same again. There was another researcher at La Trobe who I studied with for a time who was doing that same type of white light study Um it was really close to an army base and that's a kind of a prime example of what you're saying, Mark, is like it is individuals doing this stuff, but how many birds am I affecting with my porch light? Possibly one, two, mm. compared to an army base, you know, yeah. compared to all of these systemic things that are going on around us that we seemingly have no say in, but we actually do. Yeah. Yeah, that's it really highlights the importance of, of what you're doing. So if listeners want to get involved with Town Planning Rebellion, how uh, is best to do that? Mm. Um, well, we have a Facebook group. So joining that is a really, if you're on Facebook, joining that's uh, a great first step uh, because, you know, there's a lot of interaction on that every day. But we also have a web page. And um, if you just Google um, Town Planning Rebellion, uh, the web page will come up. Probably easier to say that than to try and read it off because it's quite long. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's a great way you can, so you can make contact with me directly through the webpage or through the Facebook group, or just come along and join the group and join the conversation. And we're always looking for people who are interested in hosting um, workshops, hosting talks, and when in better times, uh, citizens assemblies as well, and getting that rolling, uh, that ball rolling, should I say. So there are many ways that people can help in terms of spreading the word and helping to initiate ways of communicating what we're doing yeah that's that's really important and making those links now while we're at home and thinking about these things and yeah that's right yeah we take the first steps now and and make that contact and we'll include all of the links and information to that on our podcast upload 
on 3cr.org.au slash city limits. And, yeah, I think we might be running out of time. Is there anything else, Kevin? Just, uh, Mark, thanks for coming on and, uh, and good luck with it all. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Anytime. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure you'll want another time, but we'll, uh, we'll do it. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you. No worries. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, so back on City Limits and Dave Sweeney, the anti-nuclear campaigner for Australian Conservation Foundation on the line. Dave, I want to talk about a few things, but perhaps we should go back to last week, which was the 75th anniversary of dropping nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, Comment on that, because it's 75 years and the only country that's ever dropped bombs, of course, is the US. Good morning, Kevin. Well, have dropped bombs in anger. There's been lots and lots and lots of bombs dropped. But yes, you're absolutely right. The one where it's been used in warfare is the US and on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it was the 75th anniversary recently, and a very significant anniversary and a very significant time. And it was actually really good to see that over that time, the ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Initiative, the initiative that was born in Melbourne in 2007. And which won a Nobel Peace Prize. Indeed, it did. And so that's a great thing. And and it, it really pushed at this 75th anniversary, Kevin B, not just a, an honouring or a looking back and a reflection on what happened and an honouring of those those victims then, but it is actually a forward-looking thing to ensure that this never happens again and doing that by promoting the UN Treaty on the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons or the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and four more countries came on board and ratified that, Kevin, during that 75th, the window between the 6th and the 9th of August. So that now means 44 nations have ratified that treaty and when it gets 50 ratifications, only six more, it enters into force and it becomes part of the body of international humanitarian law. So that'll open up a lot of political, legal, economic and moral doors to put increased pressure on nuclear weapon states. So that is at least a positive thing in a very sad and scary scenario. Yeah, the, the interesting Democracy Now!, the show out of America this week, uh, one of its programs devoted the whole, on the anniversary in fact, devoted the whole program to it. But they had a filmmaker at the end who talked about when films were made about dropping the bomb shortly afterwards, all the usual suspects, including the White House, got involved in changing scripts and making sure they told the story from their point of view, just totally obfuscating the truth. Oh, massively so, and that tradition has continued. And there is also a revised argument in historical circles and elsewhere about the necessity of whether those bombs were needed and you know because obviously very much the view put forward by the u.s authorities is that the bombings in japan saved millions of lives because otherwise we would have had to invade but there's some very very strong criticisms and critics of that view and that basically of a view that says that the closing shots in world war ii were um the opening salvos in the cold war and this was a display of who has the power in the world in 1945 Mm. And they, of course, say they who have the nuclear bomb say having the nuclear bomb, in fact, is a deterrent in itself and therefore it's good to have it. Comment on that? Yeah, that's the argument, you know, peace through superior firepower and mutually assured destruction. And, you know, we can knock you out of the park if you threaten us, so therefore you won't threaten us. It has a logic that is a logic of mad, mutually assured destruction, but it is not by any stretch a safe or secure, ethical or effective approach to national security. Like to say, we are going to advance our perceived national interests by threatening life on Earth is um, a pretty high stakes game. You bring into the fact that there's declining or compromised command and control systems, there's nuclear terrorism, there's scandals, there's corner cutting, there is inept um, and venal leadership and decision making. Um, And what we are actually having is every day there is massive insecurity fostered by the existence of these weapons. Nuclear weapons do not add to security. They completely and comprehensively undermine it. They also kill even when they're not being used, Kevin, because of the massive suck 
of money, technology, skills, human and financial capital to keep and to, if you like, grow this sector, which just absolutely hemorrhages money from legitimate, real, pressing human needs. Mm. So from a security lens, from a development lens, from a justice lens, from a deployable weapon lens, from every lens possible, apart from being a member of the gang and being one of the nine declared nuclear powers, and apart from, for the early declared nuclear powers, seats at the UN Security Council and a veto vote, nuclear weapons don't help. They dramatically, dramatically undermine. Yep, and um, therefore it would be safer, I suppose, to say if you had none at all, it would be even safer than having them. Absolutely, absolutely. These are the worst weapons ever. They're an existential threat. So just like so many people are saying in statements during this time, and so many of the Habaksha, the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are saying that these weapons and humans can't coexist forever on the one planet. We choose one or the other. We prioritise a weapon system or we prioritise not just one species, but the entire species in the planet. Like, I think it's a pretty simple choice. Mm. And I think one of the really good things about the UN Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, Kevin, is that it actually gives the same choice to countries that would be on the receiving end as countries that are on the push-button end. A lot of international instruments say, oh, well, we must have the nuclear weapon states. They must be front and centre. They must agree. They must come on board. This treaty says everyone losers in a nuclear war and that means nigeria you have as much right to make a say malta as much right to make a say as the us or china and that's an important step and nations are responding to that and we want to change the way people see nuclear weapons that they're not a legitimate security tool they're actually a weapon of mass and indiscriminate murder and they have no place what are the chances of getting those extra six signatures oh it'll happen if they, were, if, if they were horses, I would be betting the house on it. They will happen. This will become international humanitarian law. Oh, just write that tip down. Hang on a tick here, right? Yeah, it will become international humanitarian law, Kevin. It's going to happen. So that then what happens is the challenge is for countries, particularly countries like Australia, which plays an enabler role. And the role we play in the international community in relation to nuclear weapons and war fighting plans is very different from the role we see ourselves and the role that gets told domestically because we are actually playing an enabler role and we are facilitating war fighting plans. So we need to really make a decision pretty quickly about whether we want to be part of the international community that is bound by the rule of law, international agreements, mutual understandings, multilateral agreements and pathways, or whether we want to be a supporter of weapons of mass destruction and rogue weapon states, which is effectively what all the nuclear weapon states will be. They will be the rogue weapon states holding significant arsenals in an illegal weapon. So, you know, that's the clear choice for Australia. The Labor Party has made it. A lot in the crossbench have made it. The Greens have made it. They've said we will sign and ratify this treaty. And there's growing parliamentary support, including a new parliamentary friends, which includes people from the coalition, or at least a person from the coalition. And it is going to happen. So we do need to really ramp up the pressure on the Australian federal parliament and government that this is where we want to be. Most Australians overwhelmingly in every formal and informal poll, Kevin, say, let's, let's get rid of these. We can also, that's the other thing, ICANN's done detailed work, as have other agencies, as has the US Harvard Law School. And we can have a highly developed military alliance with the US and still give effect to this treaty by just not playing in the nuclear weapons space. So it is very, very possible and it will be increasingly essential for Australia to have that discussion. If the nuclear powers were to say, OK, we'll get rid of our nuclear weapons, how would they do that and what dangers are involved in just getting rid of them? Yeah, that's right. Nothing is without cost or consequence. Certainly much less danger in getting rid of them than in having, having them, them there on yeah. hair trigger for, for immediate use. But uh, And we have got a model because there was, over the last two decades, there's been a, a program, Kevin, called from megatons to megawatts, where what happened was um, nuclear weapons uh, have very highly enriched uranium, far more so than what's used in a nuclear reactor. And you can effectively downblend it and then use that fuel in a reactor. So that's one option, and that's what, an option that's been proven where nuclear material has been taken from a weapon, down-blended and turned into nuclear fuel for a civilian power system. 
There's other ways you could take that material, you could just put it into direct and controlled storage. There's a whole range of things that could happen. That It's not without complication or risk or cost, but all of those things absolutely pale compared to the ongoing cost of the existence of these weapons and the consistent rollout of new generation weaponry. Like even recently in the US, in the midst of this corona thing, just for nuclear modernisation, just in the next four years, over 80 billion US dollars snuck through in a bill last week. So that's 20 billion a year, and that's not for maintaining the existing. That's 20 billion extra to just top it up and play with it and maybe put some new signage on it. And again, it's just money that is going into this chute of threat, risk, destruction, existential threats to the world, as opposed to money that could and should be answering real human needs. Yeah, and it's more dangerous when you've got Pompeo and Trump, particularly Pompeo, almost itching for war at the moment. Well, it's deeply concerning, you know, like there's this whole sabre rattling that's coming up with an election where Trump is looking increasingly fragile. And, you know, like Maggie Thatcher and like leaders have shown for many years, nothing rallies votes as much as a sense of an external threat. So whether that's real perceived or manufactured, it serves the domestic purpose, but it serves it at considerable and continuing cost. So, yeah, look, every aspect of this is really disturbing. There's, there's 15,000 of these weapons in the world, Kevin, like, and it's largely basically about 13,000 of them split between the US and Russia. And Trump and Putin are not the men that you'd choose to have the future of everything you've ever known or everything that might ever be in the hands of. They're venal, they're authoritarian, they're, you know, precious, combination of precious and ruthless. And, you know, we, we need to actually step back from this. And in the same way, in a measured way, the same way we've done with chemical and biological weapons and cluster munitions and landmines, making these things illegal in the international frame is a really big start to shrinking the space that they're used in or the space that they're spoken about and the way they're spoken about. And they're really important steps. We can't go to the US military and say, you're the most powerful military in the world. We're a group of civil society groups. We're a group of doctors. We're a group of faithful people. We're a group of of small, non-aligned nations. We want you to give up your nuclear weapons. We can't force them to do that by force. We can force them to do that by shrinking the waterhole that they swim in. And that's what all this is about. This is about delegitimizing these weapons and having the entire discussion, not about some geopolitical thing as the boys in suits run through, you know, how they pronounce difficult to pronounce names. This is about our future, our planet. You use even a small portion of that 15,000 and things are over and out. And that is not acceptable that we risk everything that was and everything that is and everything that may be because of dickhead decisions today. So let's make a good decision and remove the ability for dickheads to finish in a morning what's happened over eternity. That's not too wild a proposition. There will still be militaries, there will still be wars, there will still be conflicts. We can still harm and kill each other. We just can't harm and kill the planet in one hit. Now that is a a descaling, a de-escalation that is necessary and the treaty provides a pathway that is possible and countries are seeing that and people are seeing that and it has reanimated and revitalised the way we talk about disarmament and abolition and that's a good thing. It's big mountain to climb but it's really worth it. The view is essential. Yeah, you've talked many times to us Dave about the finances, the economics of the nuclear power industry and how it just doesn't add up and there was a case last week, a top Ohio legislator and four others were arrested by federal authorities and accused of illegally collecting $83.7 $83.7 million in Australian terms in political contributions, the purpose of the money helping to bail out the nuclear power industry. And it's First Energy is the entity that has been connected to the uh, millions that allegedly flowed to an Ohio politician and his political machinery. The Midwest state enacted a billion-dollar bailout that saved two nuclear plants once affiliated with First Energy in 2019 According to the U.S. Department of Energy, wind power became the third largest source of U.S. generating capacity in 2019, and by 2050, nuclear will drop right out, and I hope it drops out before that. But its incumbent nuclear players have lobbied extensively to get multiple states to prop them up, even while their economics continue to deteriorate. The Ohio case, if proven, shows just how toxic this can be. And that was a story in the Financial Times last week. 
I knew this one would appeal to you. I knew that you scanning papers and clips and websites and all that would see this one because for so many ways it's the intersection. It's classic. It's classic. So you've got a company that's shrinking its nuclear assets, including one reactor, the Davis Besson reactor in particular, are really risky. They're old and they should really be retired. It wants to keep them going. It wants to extend their licensing period. So you put a chunk of money into a non-profit fund, which is then used to elect a bevy of politicians to the state legislature. One of them becomes your favourite. And I thought this would trigger you because it's Larry Householder. Like you've got to love a guy who every letter, every bit of direct mail, it's all directed to Larry, to the householder. Larry <laughs> the becomes householder, the yeah. speaker of the house <laughs> in Ohio, oh me, oh my, oh, and he just pushes through a whole bunch of things. One is a $1 billion bailout, not a bad return on a $60 million spend. No, no. And then he pushes through a bill that blocks moves for citizens' referendum to overturn the law. And then when people from opposed to this, like a public, massive, undeclared bailout to ageing and risky nuclear infrastructure, try to set about to gather sufficient petitions and signatures to demand a referendum to overturn the law, then Householder and crew sign up the 15 biggest signature collection firms to just Mickey Mouse projects to ensure then that they've got a conflict of interest because they're in receipt of this so-and-so's money. So the critics have failed to get the numbers simply because the democratic process has been skewed. And every step through this shows insider trading, shows a wicked lack of concern for prudence, governance, transparency, public money, public accountability, responsibility, all of this stuff. And they've been charged, like you said, the three lobbyists, Larry Householder and his chief aide, have all been charged with racketeering and the feds are pulling the threads and they're unraveling and it'll be going for a long time. But what the issue is, is like you said, when you introduce this, Kevin, it's about the reluctance to transition and the power of vested interests, be they fossil fuels or other dirty energy like the nuclear industry, in just locking in and saying, this is how it's been and this is how we want it to stay. It's about the subsidy, in this case, to ageing reactors. And in the last 12 months, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, and now Ohio have all domino-like fallen to nuclear industry pressure and have all had sort of backdoor ways of ensuring subsidies to these private utilities that have failing and ageing technology. You know, we're seeing it elsewhere too in South Carolina and in Florida as well, also in California. So there's this constant push to suck from the public purse and a constant refusal to acknowledge the free market reality that renewables have priced nuclear out of the park and nuclear now should just quietly close incredibly clean and then exit and be very apologetic on its way out. That's what should happen. And instead, these are bombastic, cutting corners, breaking rules, using pressure, buying, bribing and bullying. And I would hope that 20% or down to uh, only only about 5% or something from um, by 2050. But I would hope that surely long before then they'll get rid of the nuclear power industry. Well, if it was just a technical question, if it was a community desire question, if it was a capacity and cost question, yes, nuclear would go out the door. But just recently, we've seen again the politics of this, Kevin. There's an, another piece of legislation that was punched through the US Congress recently. It was passed, interestingly, as an amendment to a defence appropriation, which ensured it got speedy passage and not that much scrutiny. But it was called the US Nuclear Energy Leadership Act. And it reads like the 1950s, you know, the mighty power of the atom is unveiled sort of thing. Its aim is to recover US leadership in nuclear technology and to advance the rebirth of nuclear power. What this is doing is a massive chunk of public money, again, especially pushing so-called next generation or small modular reactors, and explicitly, and this is the difference in this one and the way that the industry is now positioning to, if you like, build a shield wall against its massive funding, its massive subsidy. It is explicitly linking nuclear energy to US national security. And as you can imagine, that's a blank check in the US. And it's also pushing a newly established agency in the US called the Development Finance Corporation, the DSC. And it's pushing that they prioritise and embed a push for 
international civil nuclear projects. So whilst the facts and the dollars and the community opinion and the capacity and the ability of renewables is all going down that path, the politics remains in the states, which is important because it's a quarter of the world's reactors and a quarter of the industry and it powers and funds a lot. The politics there remain a lot like the politics in Australia, trapped and hostage to the dirty energy producers. Yeah, they obviously have enormous power, which is a, a great pity. I, well, a couple of things I wanted to raise, but I know you wanted to raise the issue of the Kimber toxic waste dump in South Australia, Dave. So in case we run out of time, do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, just quickly on that. It's, it's reaching a really um, key and decision sort of point. A lot of listeners will be aware that for a long time, the Australian government of different ilks has been trying to find a, a solution, if you like, to radioactive waste management by moving it to remote or regional South uh, Australia. There's been big fights at Muckety and up near Coobapedia and elsewhere. Well, now the whole focus is on a region called Kimber, west of Port Augusta, and there is now a push and some legislation that is currently before a Senate inquiry, which will report at the end of this month, August 31. And what that legislation would do, Kevin, is secure the Kimber site as our national radioactive waste store and dump site. And then it would also preclude that from any legal challenge. So that's sort of unusual, heavy-handed, undemocratic. Yeah. And there's lots of people who are unhappy, lots of farmers and, gra- and grain growers in the region, particularly the bungalow people, the region's traditional owners. 20-year fight to get their native title back, just had it back 18 or 24 months, and then suddenly this is in the plate. And they've said, we want to challenge this. And that's why Minister Pitt and the federal government are seeking to both name Kimber and then to actually close the door on any legal review. So it's really a concerning project. It involves double handling of intermediate level waste. It's not consistent with international best practice, but most concerning is that the traditional owners were never asked, actively excluded from a community ballot that was meant to test the temperature of the community about the project, and now are being set up to not be able to even have a day in court. So we are very much working and calling on labour and the crossbenchers not to support this legislation when it lands in the Senate later this year. It would be a profoundly unjust and a profoundly irresponsible way to deal with a long-term waste. Yeah, and it it shows, of course, that uh, native title isn't worth the paper it's written on in many cases. I mean, you've got native title, but then they can come and do what they like on your land. Well, as Gary Foley and many others have said many, many times, native title ain't land rights, folks. Native title gives you no, that's right. It gives you a right to negotiate, not a right to say no. So if you haven't got a right to say no, then I don't think you can ever really give a genuine yes. Well, we've seen it with Rio Tinto, of course, with blasting out 46,000 years of history. But even in giving evidence last week in which he said they were really sorry and they've apologised and they've shed tears, presumably, although there's probably crocodiles in that area. But he said that despite all, this is John Sebastian Jarks, the CEO of Rio in the Senate last week, but he said, look, even though we made a mistake, a small mistake, don't have a knee-jerk reaction by bringing in laws that could stop us doing it again, effectively. He didn't add the last bit, but he's saying don't have a knee-jerk reaction which would stop us investing. Yeah, you know, the triple bottom line still is pounds, dollars and euros. It's deeply, deeply disappointing. The other thing that's deeply disappointing about this is not just the lack of alignment between company rhetoric and company action, but the fact is that their action was lawful under our existing state and federal laws. Yep. You can blow up consciously, deliberately, knowingly, blow up 46,000 years of cultural history, deny that practice, and it is legal and lawful. So that is shameful and awful. And what has to come out of this is Rio Tinto need to be slapped and they need to, um, they need to feel a sniff of the pain that they've caused people. Unfortunately, a high iron oil price will probably you know, make them immune and they'll probably get their bonuses and say sorry at their next AGM. But they need to be slapped. But the laws need to be scrapped. They need to be changed. They need to be made fair income and fit for purpose at both a national and a state level to protect the things that make this country so special and to protect the people that have been here forever. Yes. What can we say about that, really? It's just bloody dreadful. The other one I wanted to raise with you, I don't know how much time I've got left. We're running out of time. But lithium, which lithium does have some radiation problems, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, look, there's a lot of talk about strategic minerals. There's lithium, there's rare earth elements. They've got significant radiation issues. And there's all these things now, cobalt and a whole range of EMs 
that are classified in this category now of strategic minerals or critical minerals. And they're linked to a lot of high-end technology, a lot of energy technology, a lot of defence and communications technology. And they've come into their own a bit now, Kevin, because China dominates particularly rare earth elements. It dominates the world production of that. And they're essential not only for comms and tech, but for defence tech. And the US Department of Defence is increasingly concerned about its supply chain vulnerability. So Australia is increasingly being seen as, as a potential circuit breaker and steady, sure hand provider of that sort of stuff. So we're seeing a really big boost in industry interest, government support, talk around exploring for development of rare earth elements, lithium, cobalt, and a whole range of other critical minerals. Yeah, I raised that because two weeks ago, um, described as struggling lithium miner Pilbara minerals, was given a, um, a huge grant from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the government's body. I just wonder how they qualify as clean energy. It qualifies clean energy because of the lithium use in the in battery tech. So, you know, renewables, there's no problem with renewables. We've got oodles of renewables. The complexity and the difficulty now is physically storing. You know, it's the storage of renewably generated energy. So there's a hell of a lot. There's a lot of people going into, you know, the supply side, if you like, of renewable energy, like how do we generate it? And there's a lot of work and thinking going into the sort of how do we store it side and distribute it. And that would fit into that camp. I'm not really, I'm not being close to this, but I know I can understand the broad policy sort of approach. And I, you can absolutely see that the spend on lithium has just surged past any spend or return on uranium in Australia. Lithium is a far more important mineral commodity to Australia's books and balance sheet than uranium is, for example. And that's happened in half a dozen years. Mm. Um, so I think we'll only see more of that. But what you said, None of this is without challenge or complication or impact. There are things that need to be either managed or avoided or addressed in all of this. And that will happen too in the necessary transition that we're making now from dirty energy to clean energy. It's not without impact, but it needs to be managed and addressed. And it needs to have a driver that isn't the sort of driver that we have now where you see Rio Tinto worth multiple scores of billions destroy consciously a site that was worth 100 million. That sort of mm. bottom line profit driver can't be the sole or primary driver of our next generation of 21st century minerals and energy. The, well, the Java River and Bougainville, of course, has never recovered. You know, years later, it's still never recovered from what was then Consing Rio Tinto's um, mine up there. Dave, just to finish up, because I think we are getting out of time, but um, the government seems really intent on pushing ahead with making green tape a lot easier to overcome, so to speak. The green tape is a barrier to real development and real economic growth. Yeah, that's certainly the case. We're living in an age where, you know, the mantra of deregulation remains very, very strong. Like it's green tape for industry. It is protections. It is sensible behaviour. It's checks and balance for everyone else. So, but you're absolutely right. There's a strong push to remove environmental and other cultural and other protections, um, and particularly there's a, a review of environmental constraints on the resource sector now being done by the Productivity Commission. There's a review of the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, the federal environmental laws. There's the COVID Recovery Commission, which is just chanting gas, 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 and get out of the way. There is a systematic sort of back to the future approach. We are dealing, we're not out of, we are dealing with a global pandemic and the back to the future approach is let's do what we were doing before the pandemic even more. Let's do, you know, exploitation on steroids. And we need to really challenge that. We need to hold, we need to hold what checks and balances we have in the process and we need to grow them because we're seeing that these trade-offs that trade gas for a clean water supply, these trade-offs that, that trade culture for a marginal increase in the bottom line balance sheet of one company that's headquartered overseas, they're not good trade-offs for this country or this planet. We actually need to have environmental protections, cultural respect, recognition and protections. Otherwise, this turns into some sort of free market privateer nightmare 
coming out of a global pandemic into an increasingly challenged and constrained and politically shrunk world being driven solely by really robber baron capitalism is a very ugly scenario. And it's not the scenario that we need and it's not the scenario that we have to have and it's not the scenario that heaps of people, not just us and the listeners, but heaps of people don't want to see that happen. So, you know, we've got to use our voices and agency to make sure that future isn't the future that comes true. Well, let's hope we do, because I think it's going to be a dangerous period ahead as they, under the cover of COVID, try to push a lot of things through. Dave, look, thanks so much for coming on today and all that information again. And we'll talk to you again some other time, of course. Uh, Thanks again for um, giving us your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, thanks for the work you're doing. Okay. Dave Sweeney there from the Australian Conservation Foundation, anti-nuclear campaigner. And that's it for City Limits this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.